G'day guys, James Newbury here and Matt Legg. We're sitting down today on the Fiber Performance Podcast episode nine with Dr. Tyler. And we are going to be talking all things nutrition, gut microbiome, short chain fatty acids, all the good stuff, um, talking health and wellness. So Tyler, I'll open it up to you, mate. It's so good to see you. It's been a few years, but I've been keeping up to date with all your stuff. I just wanted to uh, just give yourself a bit of an introduction and then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll start with some questions and we'll talk about all the cool stuff. Love it. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, it's good to see you. And I was, you know, smiling for those that may or may not have been able to see it when you're talking about all the things we're going to talk about today. All these things that I love to talk about, nutrition, the gut microbiome and its intricacies of, uh, as it relates to hormonal health, metabolic health, our mental health, amongst other things, our gut health is so central and catering to our gut health through dietary interventions, the air we breathe, the water we drink, um, and becoming more adaptable to the stressors in our life are such foundational pillars to really create um, a healthy ecosystem to really take after our health. Um, but I, a little background about me, I was a former athlete and um, it was through the desire to understand how nutrition played a role in performance and recovery that really kind of catalyzed this desire to better understand what is the best diet for everyone? Not just in this lens of athletic performance and human optimization. Um, and it led me from rather eating a standard American diet, very processed, um, very high in refined carbohydrates. Um, and really at the time I could eat anything I wanted from a caloric perspective because of how much uh, demand I was putting my body through in terms of the training. And it was through that experience I ultimately went vegetarian. I went vegan for 18 months and I got to a point where my body was so uh, burnt out. I was diagnosed with overtraining syndrome and um, it was reluctantly that I started to open my mind to reincorporate animal-based products and started to feel better. And you know, at the time I was so certain that veganism and a whole food plant-based diet was the best diet for everyone because that is what I had learned in the literature and all the health benefits related to longevity, cardiovascular health, um, amongst other things. And you know, it really set me on this journey to understand more about the human body go and pursue a career in naturopathic medicine um, and really this foundational realization that there's no one size fits all diet and that we're all biochemically unique and therefore our needs are different and they're going to change as well because we are dynamic beings. And so, you know, even if something has worked well for you in the past, it may be different current day or in the future. And I think it's important that we stay open-minded. We try not to subscribe to dogma and we do at the end of the day, what is best for us and what feels best to us. And I really believe when we can tap into that innate intelligence and listen to what our body is trying to communicate with us, which is often through symptoms, then that is a superpower, right? Being so aware of how food affects us that we know how to navigate these things when in reality, so many of us are so far dis or so disconnected from the food, not only on how it makes us feel, but even where it's coming from. So I'm sure we can dive into that. And it's really become a, a passion of mine and labor of love to educate and empower other people on how they can apply and distill distill the information that is out there to find out which diet is best for them to help them on their health journey and their goals. goals. Man, that's amazing. That is cool, man. <laughs> You're talking my language, that's for sure. Uh, 25 years of being a naturopath, that's, I think the first half of it, I was trying to follow protocols and trying to follow uh, everything. I mean, even if in reality, the, the funny thing is, is when we first started naturopath college, and mine was a four year science degree or something, but in the first year, they're telling everyone to live on chicken and soy. And I think by the fourth year, they're telling everyone, don't touch chicken and soy. You know, so it changes so quickly because um, what works for one person definitely doesn't work for another. But as you said, 
what you find works for you, it only works for a period of time and then we need to change. Did you find any really cool patterns about what sort of time frame? I used to do a lot of work with athletes, um, you know, body composition athletes and that sort of stuff. And we found that whatever we did, that people would typically adapt within, you know, somewhere between six days or six weeks where we'd, they'd already adapt to the adaptation and we'd need to change it again. Did you see any sort of patterns? In the end, I just started switching things with the seasons. I, I also was seasonal as well. And I think that just intuitively changing with the seasons as we are, you know, we're mammals, we're part of this greater ecosystem and, and part of our greater environment, right? We're not separate from yeah. that. And so, um, yeah, I think it was more seasonal and also just looking at the seasons of training as well and competition and how I really um, reflected in um, those different nutritional needs. Yeah, funny, we were talking yesterday, I said to James, I think that the training season in Australia goes from Easter Monday to the Melbourne Cup, which is the first Tuesday in November. Um, and the rest of the time, we're all drinking beer and partying. Um, or maybe that was just me, uh, <laughs> which is why I think we do a lot of winter sports and everything like that as well. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, how you change people's diets regarding the stage of the season that they're in or competition? Yeah, well, I think first it was creating a foundation of, of why food is important, because I think, I mean, at least when we're thinking about with athletes, we're typically, you know, there's this, this thought that that's, I can eat whatever I want, because we're still with this calories in calories out perspective, and just really focusing on the macronutrients, making sure we're getting, you know, a certain amount of carbs for that muscle fullness that we're getting an adequate amount of protein or sufficient amounts of protein, should I say, because we're putting on our, our body under a lot of stress. And, you know, we need to replete the, the muscle storage and help to support muscle protein synthesis. So there's baseline education on what are the importance of these macros and make sure that we're hitting these, but also from a caloric perspective, not all calories are created equal and that food very much is information and that we can leverage food to reduce inflammation, to improve our recovery time. And again, it was creating this environment of education of creating a space for asking questions to help figure out what is that person's goals? What are the foods that they're adverse to or ones that they can incorporate? Because for every person, you may have this one standard pitch that you may give them. But at the same time, too, if they're not open to receiving that and they have a very picky diet and, um, you know, they're not even open to receiving that information, it can be really tough to, to get people there. But my biggest place where I would start with always people is, yes, we need to make sure we're getting in enough food. But I also want you to think about nutrient density as well. So we were talking about the vitamins, we we're talking about minerals, we we're talking about where these these different micronutrients are coming from, which are essential nutrients, they just are needed in smaller quantities compared to your macronutrients. Um, and, you know, starting to figure out what are those foods that people enjoy? How can we incorporate more color into their diet? And no, this is not in the form of Skittles. Um, it is in the form of more brightly colored produce, fruits, vegetables, um, herbs, spices. I think about culinary medicine, I often will coin it kitchen medicine and trying to encourage people to, you know, get back into the kitchen. I mean, athletes at least can be strapped for time. They don't always want to cook. And so knowing how to navigate and how they can make better and healthier food choices to keep them on track with their health goals. And, you know, the one question I'd always ask is, you know, with these dietary changes, what is that need or that desire to want to make change? What are the long-term goals that you want to see with making these changes? And I found that when you're able to tap into that person's motivation and desire of wanting to make change, that is going to lead to far greater outcomes. And so, again, that's, you know, very individualized for every person. Um, but I think it's just reframing the conversation around, one, providing education, two, tapping into what is their desire to make change, and then three, was really starting to talk about how you can leverage food in certain facets in terms of improving performance, 
and you know reducing inflammation whatever it is that person was after um and just also acknowledging that you know these things change over time and that if you have a really tough period of time where you're really going into doubles every day you have training camp then you're gonna really need to make sure that you are you know getting in a lot more nourishment because you're spending your body a lot more and also focusing on the recovery tools as well that's so cool and just talking about uh inflammation so We've been diving pretty deep, and Matt's been a big proponent on this, especially here in Australia, about looking at how we can decrease that inflammation and where we're finding a lot of that inflammation um, probably is triggered or the primary source of it uh, is from the gut. So we want to maybe just maybe jump straight into the good stuff and maybe talk a little bit about how uh, you would treat, say, someone that comes to you. And we're actually talking about this the other day with an with most athletes that come through they did a they did a study and, and, and Matt checked this out at 90% of athletes either have a fear or a worry going into competition that they might have upset stomach during the competition either whether it's from you know stress or whether it's from poor diet or whether it's from overexertion um, I did an Ironman on the weekend and I was anticipating having a pretty upset stomach you know part way through the marathon to finish off but I actually felt really really good and the last time I did it I was in excruciating cramps for about 40 minutes of the run which was about four hours and this time it was just just sweet sailing the whole way um is there anything that you've come across in most recent times that you've you know either popped into you know the everyday person or or an athlete into their diet to help overcome or to help increase um the effectiveness or efficiency of the gut microbiome that you think is just does wonders for the gut Oh, that's a good question. Um, do you want this specifically tailored to athletes or just individuals at large? Individuals at large. What, what's something that you would add into the diet that you would be like, you know, this is, this is going to promote um, a, a more robust gut microbiome. I would suggest you have maybe more kimchi or maybe more of this or this and those types of things. Yeah. So I would say it's fermented foods. And again, not everybody can tolerate fermented foods, but oftentimes we hear about prebiotics. So these fibrous foods, non-digestible carbohydrates, we can't break it down in terms of humans, but the trillions of bacteria in our gut can. And the bacteria can um, break down that fiber and then they create these byproducts, those postbiotics, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and that those metabolic byproducts are which have all these health promoting benefits to human physiology human physiology. Now, there was a study that came out in Cell last year. It was done by Stanford researchers. Um, and what they did is they divided two groups. I believe it was 20 uh, individuals in both cohorts. And they had one eating prebiotic foods daily, and they had one eating fermented foods daily. I believe it was two servings of fermented foods per day. And what they found was that when they looked at stool analysis of these individuals after this time period, um, I believe it was 10 weeks, that there were significantly, there's significantly more abundance of bacteria in the individual's guts that consumed the fermented food compared to the prebiotic rich foods, significantly um, less inflammatory markers and more anti-inflammatory cytokines uh, compared to those that consume prebiotic foods. Um, and they also found um, that there was more, less of this dysbiotic environment too, in terms of overgrowth and like this dysbiosis picture, which, you know, eubiosis is this, you know, this balance of good bacteria and, you know, there can, there can be this foothold where pathogenic bacteria can grow and there's different factors that can influence that. But fermented foods help to create this more beneficial environment that allows the good bacteria to grow and to, and to thrive in that environment. And so I found that as just a very actionable takeaway is, you know, 
two servings of fermented foods. It doesn't matter if it's kimchi or if it's sauerkraut or, you know, a truly fermented yogurt, because I know a lot of people will think, oh, you know, yogurt is a fermented food, but a lot of them really um, are pasteurized, they're heat treated, there's actually no living bacteria in there, they're loaded with sugar, additional gums and thickeners, which you know, for some people that have gut issues, it can actually exacerbate, you know, symptoms of IBS and cause intestinal distress. So, you know, really thinking about how we can incorporate those into a day-to-day -day basis, and we're seeing significant improvements in these markers. And so I think that's a very actual thing of how we can incorporate fermented foods into a day-to-day -day basis. It's not a supplement, right? But you can think of it as a food as medicine type of thing like that, where you're maybe adding a little, you know, a little bit of sauerkraut or kimchi, um, you know, to a salad or you're adding it to a Buddha bowl uh, or something of the sorts. Um, and there's so many different varieties of fermented foods out there too. I don't know if you have some, some favorites, kimchi and sauerkraut, definitely something that I consume on a daily oh, basis. I love, I love good. I could down pickle ginger all day long. I, I love it. We love it. The, um, a, a really interesting thing when you're talking about it, and a lot of people don't understand. So, um, probiotics that we talk about are, are the live bugs, so the live organisms. For this, for the people, <laughs> the the prebiotics, the prebiotics are the food. So when in our guts we've got so many different types of bugs and and lots of different types of bugs. So when we have prebiotics, we're basically giving food to those bugs. Those bugs then will ferment it, and from that food they'll create compounds. Those compounds we call postbiotics. So we have the pre meaning before. Pro means they're busy doing stuff, and then the post means there's the stuff they've created. And it's the stuff they create that gives you that the health benefits to the host or potentially the negative aspects. So the thing is, is with our gut, because we've got so many different types of bugs in there, all different ratios, most of us actually have too many bugs, too many of the wrong types. And that's actually, I think, what the definition of dysbiosis is, is too many of the wrong types of bugs. And then what happens is when we give you prebiotics, they're indiscriminately feeding a lot of those bugs. So they have the ability then. So what's living in you will determine what chemicals are made from the food you're feeding your gut. And it's what chemicals you make determine whether you're going to get the health benefits from those bugs or we're going to get negative effects. So that's the way one man's medicine can be another man's poison is by how bad guts can hijack good foods okay, and take it down the wrong pathway. So one of the best things about fermented foods is it's in a more controlled environment where we can select our prebiotics, we can create the right levels of acid and base or pH or whatever to get the thing started. Um, then we can seed it with specific bugs and they actually create specific compounds that provide those health benefits. Just like if we wanted to be evil, we could get bad foods with bad bugs and make poison and give it to people. We can actually get good food with good bugs and make healthy things, okay? And then when we eat them, we get those health benefits from those fermented foods. And that's one of the amazing things about fermented foods is it gives you the postbiotic compounds that confer the health benefit at the same time as it sets up an environment in your gut to establish those good bugs to live um, and colonize and grow. At the same time as what's interesting, what the whole concept about fermented food is, these guys feed on all the prebiotic fuel to a point until it makes enough chemicals that says, right, stop growing now, and it becomes its like own preservative system because it makes all these antimicrobial compounds. And this is an interesting thing I see all the time when people argue over, am I carnivore or am I herbivore or whatever? They talk about these poisonous compounds found in plants that destroy your gut, but it's not the case. Most of us have an overgrowth of gut bugs, just like you'd have an overgrowth of bugs in a compost heap. You just let things grow, they just overgrow. 
which is why it's important to have some of these antimicrobial compounds. And I spend a lot of time gardening. So to me, you know, there's a, it's like throwing fertilizer at weeds, just using pro prebiotics indiscriminately into your guts if you're full of the bad bugs. Um, using probiotics that you buy is like throwing grass seeds at weeds, expecting them to get up and go, you know? What we need to do is a little bit of weed and feed. We need a little bit of that antimicrobial stuff, make some space, which is why it's important to have foods in their whole forms where all the antimicrobial compounds are usually found in the skins and the peels and the seeds or in all these fermented foods or in amongst all of our herbs and spices that go with our bigger macros. So that's why it's so important to manage those sort of things and then we can control how the good foods provide us with the benefits. The problem is we often go get a little bit worse before we get better, a little bit of a Herxheimer reaction or something. So um, people have to ride through that and there's a lot of other anti-nutrients in plants that eventually our gut will get the hang of. So it's really important that we cycle um, regularly to make sure that our guts are constantly changing. I love the simplicity with which you with the, with which you share that for people and realizing so much. I mean, this is what I often say around food is food, while it is information, it often is the innocent bystander. So if people are reacting to various different foods, whether it's gluten or oxalates or lectins or whatever it is, right? It's responding to the internal bodily terrain. If you want to improve your tolerability and resilience to these different foods, tend to the terrain, tend to the gut microbiome, because by doing so, you're going to change how your body responds. And even to your point, you know, you can get so caught up in all of these anti-nutrients and plant compounds that let's say are toxic, right? But a body that is resilient actually has all the machinery to deal with that and can adapt to that to a degree. And food very much influences that because of how it influences the terrain. And what it made me or led me to think is how we have certain lactobacillus strains that produce phytases to actually break down phytic acid. But if we have dysbiosis, well, we're not going to be able to maybe break down those phytic acids and we're going to have a harder time breaking those down and there's going to maybe be a little bit more inflammation. So do we need to completely remove those foods or do we actually need to maybe more properly prepare those foods and build up some type of tolerance to it where we can change that gut microbial community over time to where we are able to tolerate those foods because there are a lot of great nutrients that come from those type of foods and we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In my opinion, it's almost kind of like this you know, palliative care or how we're using food almost to band-aid symptoms and we're just removing the problem, like a food that we're reacting to without actually addressing why is that person reacting to that food in the first place? Why are, why are they responding that way? And a lot of times it comes back to the gut, which is why I'm glad we're having this conversation today. Totally. And the oxalates, a classic example, that's one of the most, oxalates and salicylates I probably see the most intolerance to short-term. So what oxalates are, they're like little crystals and under a magnifying glass, they look like little email signals. They're like, they're like little spiky little things. They can cause kidney stones, joint problems, irritate your nerves. But they're found in a lot of the healthy foods, you know, spinach, sweet potatoes, cherries, and that sort of stuff. So you go to people, they go, oh, I've switched to a healthy diet now. I feel like I'm dying. And someone goes, oh, it's a, you just get worse before you get better or a healing crisis or something. And it's like, no, it's oxalates. Um, and what you'll find is we get certain bugs that can actually consume and deplete the oxalates and then other bugs that can make more. So what can happen is normally, for example, you'd eat a whole heap of spinach and sweet potato and all that sort of stuff trying to be healthy. Your microbiome would process so most of that oxalate out so you maybe only absorb about 10% of the oxalates that you eat. And then what happens is 
your guts change, you eat all these extra oxalates or you've been going low carb for too long, then you switch over to these healthy foods and that sort of thing. Next thing you know, you feel like you're getting kidney stones, all these joint problems and irritation and nerve stuff. And that just takes a little bit of time because what can happen, you have certain bugs that may have been making the oxalates. So all of a sudden, instead of 90% of it going straight through, you get like 150% absorption. And then all of a sudden, it's just a matter of changing over those gut bugs and getting the minerals and everything right to strip them back out. And it comes good. Salicylates are a poison, aspirin-like compounds that are found in a lot of herbs and spices as well. Our body just um, it gets used to detoxifying that regularly. But as we get out, eat more and more of it, we get better and better at detoxifying it if we supply enough nutrients for that. Typically things like glycine, which is really high in plant protein, by the way. <laughs> so that's where it, it should match itself up. But they're the most common ones I see, oxalates, salicylates, um, other than the, the gut bugs just hijacking food for other purposes. Yeah. <laughs> that's super interesting. So going on to those postbiotics, so these compounds that are being produced by the probiotics or the, or the bugs inside our gut or whether we do a fermentation process and do it in a lab, but let's talk inside the gut for now. These postbiotics that are uh, compounds produced by the, by the gut bacteria when they feed on prebiotic, what are some really, I guess, maybe well-known, I guess, in, in your two guys' field, what are, the, what are some well-known postbiotics that are giving us health benefits? So what types of things are postbiotics? Are they, are they things like uh, short-chain fatty acids? Are we looking at antioxidants? Are we looking at enzymes? What yes, types of things? Yes, yes, yes. All of those so far. <laughs> What's so vitamins B12, vitamin K, um, things like glutathione and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, short-chain fatty acids, which we, well, I mean, we've got to go, we'll have episodes directly into those, as well as other things like ketones and that sort of stuff associated with fat burning. Um, so many. What, what else? We throw in some Tyler, I'm rattling my brain. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've heard just, about butyrate. I've heard about butyrate. short-chain fatty acids. Yeah, the yeah, short-chain fatty acids, yep. propionate acetate, butyrates, and you have specific bacteria that are going to produce those short-chain fatty acids. And what I find so fascinating, even speaking to the enzymes and the different antioxidants, is how these byproducts, these postbiotics too, are able to bind to various receptors throughout the body to stimulate our own body's antioxidant defense systems to produce more of these antioxidants to stimulate and create some of these peptides. So peptides is another category as well that we can talk about. So it's this, it's one is the manufacturing and two, the downstream signaling pathways that they elicit when they bind a certain in park in certain, you know, parking spots throughout the body too. Um, and it is far spread all throughout the body. I'm sure we're just focused on the gut right now, but you know, it also is going to influence the acidity of the the gut microbial terrain, which is going to influence what type of bacteria are growing. It's going to prevent pathogenic bacteria from growing. It's going to influence colorectal cancer and its growth and proliferation. There, I mean, there's so many different factors that we are looking at, you know, starting in, in vivo studies and then looking, you know, in, in, in larger studies as well and looking at, you know, tissue biopsies and how there's this interaction with, you know, a lot of these different mediators and postbiotic um, chemical, so to say, and how it's actually really influencing the entirety of that, that microbiome and even the terrain with which that microbiome is sitting in. That's super cool. Oh man. And the one that not many people talk about, there's a lot of new data coming out about it, but it's actually the dead bugs as well. So in amongst the postbiotic matrix, it's not just the org, the chemicals that the bugs make, but as the bugs die, they're, they're calling them zombie zombie bugs or ghost biotics because they're dead but active, which is a really cool concept because 
if they maintain their cell structure, the immune system still samples them and attacks them. So it does, it still stimulates the immune system. And as they die, they still liberate all those nutrients because they basically are full of everything that the other bugs need, but everything we need as well. They're a source of nutrition themselves. It's almost like compost, you know, they, they die off and then feed the other bugs and feed us. I mean, we could go so deep into this because even if you go all the way back to like the basics of anatomy physiology, we're talking about how these microbes make things to support mitochondrial energy production. Or a lot of those short chain fatty acids fit directly into the citric acid cycles. And then all of a sudden we go back and go remember that there is a theory that the mitochondria itself is a bacteria. So when you actually look at the mitochondria of every cell of our body, it is, it's a bacteria. It resembles, has all the same structures and hallmarks of these bacteria, which makes me think what happens when I take antibiotics. But that's a different discussion. Um, but so you can see not only do these things supply the things for the mitochondria, but potentially they are the mitochondria, you know, so back into stages of evolution, which is a crazy conversation. And that's so, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And, and from, from my perspective, uh, as like like yourself and we've all had our had our time in sport but i like to look at these types of things and how can i increase my ability on the competition floor whether it's doing either crossfit or strength exercises or you know uh, triathlon ironman how can i influence my gut to work really well not only for the health benefits there not not the physical health benefits but also the mental health benefits as well because I find that there's a large correlation um, when I eat bad food. I also don't feel as good emotionally. And Tyler, you might want to speak to this as well between the, the, the gut-brain axis that we have. And if we can nurture the gut as much as possible, we'll probably find that we'll, we'll have the end result will also be a more sound mindset and, and presence there. So have you noticed much to do with finding either athletes you've worked with or or gen pop that you've worked with that once they improve the gut microbiome and and you know obviously add in some better foods into their diet and add in some exercise and and you know sort of take hold of their sleep cycles too that their their mood and their their presence is improved too oh absolutely and i think a lot of that has to do with yes we're changing the types of microbes that are there and the different factors that they're secreting but I also think about the role of the gut lining too, because the bacteria and those microbes that are in your gut too are also influencing the permeability of the gut lining. And something that you know is is quite common in athletes um, is something called exercise exercise induced endotoxemia. Um, and so specifically, it's this type of bacteria, lipopolysaccharide, that can actually bypass and where it's inside the gut actually go across the gut lining and actually get into the bloodstream and can lead to a lot of uh, the symptoms of inflammation. Um, it can lead to cramping, abdominal pain, uh, headaches, uh, kind of this brain on fire, neuroinflammation can be a result of lipopolysaccharides. And so I really thinking about the integrity of the gut lining and I think about how those microbes play a role in it too. But I also think about how work, um, the workload also influences that as well, as well as the recovery period as well. So one is the type of activity that we're engaging in. And two, I thinking about the recovery window as well to mediate that. And some of the best things we can do is getting some starch in our diet before a very high intensity workout um, and thinking about antioxidant rich foods and also probiotics. When we're talking about those live microorganisms, how they're able to attenuate that LPS induced inflammation for those that are engaging in this high intensity 
um, activities, especially endurance-based. So we see this a lot in those that are swimmers or ultra marathoners or those that compete in Ironmans, um, that we see these higher rises in lipopolysaccharides in the bloodstream after these type of events. And so by very much taking care of the guts, feeding it the right things, making that we're get, getting sure that we're getting in those those good carbohydrates, not just a low carbohydrate diet, but we're getting in some of that starch, good fruits, those prebiotic rich foods. We're getting in the quality protein, fats, and antioxidants in a really balanced approach. That is going to be the best way in terms of a foundational starting place. But there's also some literature to suggest the benefits of adding in a probiotic or even adding in some additional antioxidants like um, resveratrol or um, acetyl-L-carnitine because of how it's supporting mitochondrial health or alpha-lipoic acid. And so, you know, there's a different different ways that we can take this, but it starts with those foundational pieces first. And that gut piece is definitely a critical factor in terms of how it's going to influence those inflammatory responses. That's so oh, funny. And you, citrulline, man. Oh. Citrulline. you got to look at this some wicked research on citrulline talking about that athletic endotoxemia and almost looking at citrulline being a bit of a switch between the roles of glutamine supporting gut and then conversion through to citrulline for vasodilation as part of exercise performance and some wicked data on citrulline showing that it can prevent a lot of that defects there. And it's a low dose trickle, not just a mega dose pre-workout supplement. So citrulline's got some cool data there for it too. That's that's so cool. And sorry. But that would make sense just because I think about the hypoperfusion, so the low perfusion of blood to the gut with some of this exercise. And if we're opening up those blood vessels because citrulline is going to you know, increase nitric oxide and get more blood flow in there, I would assume it would help attenuate those symptoms. Yeah, it's a crazy one. And even just that switch backwards and forwards, it's almost like the body decides where we're going to store it as glutamine for the gut wall while we're in regeneration repair mode, or are we going to switch it over to the citrulline, float it around the kidneys ready for um, our survival mechanisms? Yeah. It's so interesting. And what you touched on there with the lipopolysaccharides and you know how it has all these different effects if they do make their way through to the bloodstream and making you feel n not great especially in in the mind well after i can tell you right now um firsthand that after the iron man the next day i felt hungover i was like i was hydrated but my brain was just not working well and um my friend who i did the race with she was the exact same. She's just like, I feel hungover. I don't feel good. We're hydrated. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're peeing clear. But we felt not right for a couple of days after. And I didn't have that many. And typically after a workout, like I live on, you know, bright, colorful berries and things all day long. That's pretty much my go-to smoothie bowls. I'm blending up tons of berries all the time and different varieties and trying to get as much color into my diet as I possibly can. But post the race... We kind of just didn't really have we were out in the middle of nowhere as well so we didn't have that much access to this stuff and then we were driving and flying and jumping in and off of planes and the 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 recovery aspect of the iron man was just not there so we actually i think we felt the fatigue from it mentally and physically for longer than we technically should have just because you've gone straight from a an 11 hour race uh and went straight into sitting in a car getting on a plane um, and then just going back to the regular thing and, and not having that good food to overcome all of the damage that we kind of did to ourselves during that race. So that does make a lot of sense and that kind of speaks to me pretty well. Um, I guess from from my, my point of view, I find that I do respond the best when I'm competing. Um, if 
to, to keep my gut at a nice even playing field. I'll do lots of simple, easy to digest things like I'm, I'm downing a lot of blueberries, raspberries, blackberries. Um, I'll probably do some banana, but I'm going real basic. I'm going just starchy carbs. I've got maybe some sweet potato. I'm doing rice. I usually do like a basmati rice of some description. And during the day whilst I'm competing, I'm keeping my my fats at a, at a fairly minimal minimal amount. I'm having a little bit and I'm not having a ton of protein. My carbohydrates are obviously a lot more, but then over night time, I'll increase my fats and my, my protein just to make sure that I'm, I'm getting enough in for the day so I can repair. And especially if these events are going for like five days in a row, we want to make sure recovering. But I respond better to real food than I would say gels. So for instance, what I did preparing for the Ironman is I had a box of dates um, so I, I pitted the dates myself, I put them in a box, I put them in my, uh, my transition bag to the run. So we did our 4K ocean swim, we went and did a 180K bike ride, and I got through gels there, which I don't really like taking, but they're a really easy way to get stuff in quickly. And we're actually gonna work on creating a really good quality gel um, that sits well in the stomach. But then I had this box of 12 dates, which I took with me on the start of the run. So over the course of about a 5Ks, into the run I'd eaten 12 dates and I felt fantastic after that it was like honestly it was just so nice just to down dates instead of having those damn gels that just taste like artificial sweetener and yeah that's really sat well on my guts and I know for me that works a lot so I'm I'm guessing for majority of people that haven't really ever tried it if you're if you're out there and you're going to go do a long distance endurance event maybe uh pack some dates and chuck them in your back pocket because they do work a treat yeah Maybe see a uh, date paste with L-citrulline uh, gel in the in the future works. Maybe it for, sounds uh, like it. I'm sitting here racking my brain. It does sound like a good blend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, if um if you could if you could give someone, for instance, I think this is pretty this is pretty cool because this is this speaks to the people that will be listening. If you could give, say, three foods. If you could give someone three foods that you think that they should introduce into their diet or something that you like to eat yourself that you've found, um, you know, covers a lot of bases, whether it's, you know, super antioxidant rich, has tons of vitamins and minerals or gives a good punch of protein um, or is, you know, a really good quality carbohydrate. What are, what are three foods that you'll be like, you know, if everyone just ate these three foods, they're going to be probably performing or optimizing their, 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 their daily being. What are three foods that you love to have on a daily basis or a, or a weekly basis? Hmm, that's a really good question. I okay, so the first one would actually probably be salmon roe. So if we're looking specifically from a nutrient density profile, salmon roe has protein, it's low in carbohydrate, but it's really high in essential fats, only omega three fats. And omega threes, there is a ton of research out there on the benefits of omega three fatty acids. And they can come in different forms to the majority of the omega threes, especially as you're eating them in, you know, let's say fish, uh, fish fillets or the flesh of fish in terms of the muscle meat, or if you're getting them in fish oil supplements or in the triglyceride bound form. But what's unique about salmon roe and the fish eggs, it's in the phospholipid bound form. And because of that, it actually has greater bioavailability. Um, in terms of absorption, but can also bypass and cross the blood-brain barrier, which I think is really important, especially because of these long-chain fats, EPA and DHA. DHA is more critical for um, our nervous tissue and our brain health, where EPA is a very potent anti-inflammatory mediator. And we actually can produce these lipid-derived inflammatory mediators. And so we can actually resolve inflammation through 
the downstream byproducts of the of EPA and DHA, uh, which I find so cool that you know just a way of food actually playing a role in the inflammatory response and resolving that inflammatory response because inflammation, the acute response is a normal adaptive response. We want to make sure that we can actually turn off that inflammation switch and it is acute and it doesn't turn to chronic. Um, so I really like the salmon row because you know the EPA and the DHA, and this is different from the alpha linoleic acid that you're going to find in uh, plant-based sources of omega-3s like your chia and your flax and your hemp. Um, and I think a lot of people would benefit from more omega-3s, especially with a lot of the literature and associations that we see with that very anti-inflammatory improved outcomes in terms of cardiovascular disease risk, um, amongst other things as it relates to uh, neurodegenerative disease as well. So that would be number one, would be yep. salmon roe. Big fan of berries. I mean, they're a rich source of you know antioxidants, these anthocyanins, vitamin C, which is beneficial for our gut health. It's also beneficial for our structural and connective tissue. You think about collagen. Vitamin C is used as cofactors in creating various different neurotransmitters. I mean, what doesn't vitamin C do, right? And we also know how it supports the immune system as well. Um, and so we need, you know, a certain amount of vitamin C to supersaturate all these different enzymes that use it. And then beyond that, we can actually use it for tissue integrity as well. So um, berries are really one of those fruits that really stand out to me that I feel like have just so many different uh, health benefits from a functional food perspective. And they're also low glycemic for those that maybe are trying to watch how much um, uh, sugars they're getting in in their diet. And Absolutely. the last one I would say are, you know, this is probably a different one, but it's going to be mushrooms. Mushrooms are really unique because they contain these polysaccharides called beta glucans that have a lot of benefits to the gut microbiome as well. So I think of them as very much as a gut microbiome loving food. Um, we were talking um, about how, you know, the microbes and having these um, these zombie-like bacteria that no longer have this functional role, but they're almost in this decomposing kind of environment. And, you know, the mushrooms and the myceliated network is very much considered that um, the, the, the decomposers of our world, so to say. But you're getting a lot of these beneficial beta-glucans that are going to help with the immune system. They're going to help with our gut microbiome, and those go hand in hand. Um, and I really think it's a seasonal food that you can incorporate and you're going to get things not only from shiitake and maitake and oyster mushrooms. There's so many different varieties, but you also have, you know, the white button mushrooms and you're going to get benefits from eating just those, those typical mushrooms that you're going to find at your, your grocery store. Um, and you know, what I like about it too, is it's not as high of a fermentability index as some of these other high prebiotic foods. So for most people, they can tolerate them well. Um, at least when cooked, and they're not going to get a lot of gas or bloating or digestive distress that they would get maybe from eating asparagus or jicama or apples, even though I love them, um, they can just be triggering for um, people when they have dysbiosis. Totally. And Matt, for you, like, what, what's some foods that you would be like, you know, these two or three foods are just going to be, you know, game changer for you, oh, just putting them into your diet? It's so hard to narrow it down. Yeah. Um, but pomegranate, I'm obsessed with pomegranate. Everything about the pomegranate from the skins, the peels, the pulp and everything with pomegranate. Um, pumpkin seed is something I've been obsessed with lately. And interesting when we're talking about the essential fatty acids, what in a lot of plant-based diets, one of the best strategies to make sure you maintain good levels of EPA, DHA is maintaining the cofactors for the enzymes that convert the precursors through to the final forms. And a lot of those are found in things like the nuts and seeds that also contain the precursor oils, which is a cool thing, because we're looking at zinc, magnesium, B vitamins, and that sort of stuff that aid that conversion. In fact, 
A couple of studies showed that you're more likely to get deficiencies in EPA DHA from having a dietary zinc deficiency than a dietary oil deficiency because you can't convert anything through. Even one study they compared turmeric um, to EPA DHA and found more brain EPA DHA in the turmeric group than the people supplementing with the fish oil because it supported the inflammatory pathways, oxidative stress pathways, as well as the enzyme systems. So putting the pumpkin seeds is a good source of those zinc, seleniums and everything else that we need to convert and I'm just obsessed with it lately. <laughs> um, so good. pomegranate, pumpkin seed and also I'm obsessed with herbal tea so I always end up with some going to back to something like Shisandra or something like that. that's a good opportunity to add in as a supplement to our diet from a tea form that we can have that will actually drive a lot of the processes supporting our gut and Shisandra is an easy one for me and always has been since I was studying naturopathy because I could cheat on all my herbal exams. That asks stupid questions like, name three herbs that are good for your brain. Oh, Shisandra. Name three herbs good for your liver. Oh, Shisandra is one of them. Three herbs good for your lungs, Shisandra. So I could just cheat and put Shisandra as every one of those systems because it seems to be one of those amazing adaptogenic herbs. So Shisandra, pomegranate. I was tossing up between reishi mushrooms because I'm obsessed with it, but you nailed the mushrooms. Um, so, yeah, I went for the pumpkin seed. I, I love it. I love it. Well, <laughs> those are, I think those are some amazing things that I think, you know, they're things that I would try and get in. Like I'm, I'm having mushrooms every day. I, I get pomegranate in some way shape or form um, but I really like I really like the diversity there and and for me I'm trying to I'm trying my best to add in like I love chewing on nori seaweed I love having a having a crack at I, I love tempeh I love that it's fermented I love that I get a bit of protein out of it as well I can make it taste nice too these days back in the day I couldn't um, but trying to keep those things as a staple part of my everyday and just a simple bowl like a I like to start my day, well, I usually start eating at around 10 or 11 a.m., but I usually just love starting my day with a big bowl of organic oats mixed with a bit of our protein powder, which is super cool, by the way. Um, Tyler, I think you'd really enjoy the way that Matt's formulated this protein powder as well because <laughs> it's got a good mix of um, organic pea protein, watermelon seed, so we've bumped up the leucine with the watermelon seed, we've added pumpkin seed and sunflower seed, but then we've also done something super cool here too. Yeah, we fermented it. So we took it in, fermented it in the lab with Lactobacillus plantarum, Lactobacillus rhamnosus, um, and a couple other bifidobacterium species, but that Lactobacillus plantarum managed to generate a lot of the great short-chain fatty acids and then those phytase enzymes and everything as well. Because even though the, the plant protein is pretty processed as a plant protein, it's part of a plant-based diet, which is going to be full of the anti-nutrients. So we're supporting the general gut health, even within a protein powder to aid that transition. It and does make a massive difference. And I was going to claim that's why you went well in your marathon. Well, that's what I'm kind of <laughs> thinking. I have no idea actually why the, the case, and maybe because I added also added in some dates too. But mm. yeah, the, the, cool thing, the cool thing about it is we'll always will always recommend as a first priority, and I know you're of the same nature here too, Tyler, that 99% of all of the nutrients that we get should come from a, a, a whole food diet. We're trying to get the best, most um, wholesome diet we possibly can. And, and I guess these uh, these supplements are just, you know, the bonuses, icing on the cake, insurance policies that we're adding in just as a benefit. Or if you're on the go, it's good to you know, have a, a protein shake instead of going and opting for the the, the sausage roll instead or whatever it may be but um in terms of just to finish it off um maybe uh two supplements that you both absolutely love that people could you know potentially add into their diet if it's something that works well for them um if 
Maybe, maybe, Maddie, do you want to go first on this one? Two well, two things that you love. Yeah, it'd be yes and no. <laughs> they haven't. We when are we release? We're releasing them in the new year. Like <laughs> the one. So we're working on some stuff. Like we are. Mate, I, well, the last stuff we made would be my favourite, but the, <laughs> the stuff that we're working on to release next is oh. the best thing we've ever done. So just throw to Tyler because I'm not can't talk about it just yet. Tyler, you're gonna love the stuff that Matt's formulated. <laughs> oh, we'll send you. You're gonna blow your I mind. I can't wait man. to see. You're I mean, when you're when you're talking about because do you measure the postbiotics in your protein? Yeah, you yeah, do. it's cool. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so two products right now. I. I actually really love this product. It's NAD Gold. So it's precursor to NAD and it also contains um, trimethylglycine too. So it's going to help with as a methyl donor, um, having, being somebody that I know personally has um, mutations in my MTHFR gene and need additional support and help with methylation. Um, I really notice a difference and that's why I like it. It gives me this uplift in the morning, uh, increased energy. Uh, instantly. It doesn't feel like a caffeine or borrowed energy, but it's helping to support mitochondrial function. It's helping to support inflammation. Um, it's helping to support and bolster those antioxidant defense systems. And NAD is a compound that is used uh, as a cofactor in all these different energy reactions in the body. And as we get older, we usually, um, those NAD, le NAD levels decline. You probably have heard of people maybe in the longevity biohacking space that will go in and get NAD drips. Um, and so this is a sublingual formula. I think it's NMD, which is precursor to NAD that, um, I've really noticed a difference in something that I will take to support mitochondrial health, because as we've been talking about gut health and the importance of, of gut health, I really believe we're going to really start to see in the next couple of years, the conversation changing to our mitochondrial health. And also, as you mentioned earlier, that those mitochondria, you know, are really, you know, ancient bacteria as well. And you think about, you know, various different chronic ailments, whether that is metabolic dysfunction, like, you know, fatty liver or diabetes, or you have things like Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, things like fibromyalgia, mental health conditions as well. These can all be downstream sequelae or consequences of dysfunctional mitochondria. And our mitochondria not only are making energy, they play so many more important roles beyond the energy, but most people probably learn they're the powerhouse of the cell, right? So I'm always thinking about how can I support my mitochondria? So that would be number one. Um, number two um, is actually going to probably be sulforaphane. I take a encapsulated sulforaphane uh, extract. Uh, sulforaphane is a phytochemical that comes from cruciferous vegetables. And cruciferous vegetables like your, you know, your Brussels sprouts, your cabbage, your cauliflower, your broccoli, um, contain this chemical that um, can increase our biotransformation pathways in terms of how it helps to support detoxification in the liver and how we're able to turn those um, environmental toxins and even hormone metabolites and mark them for excretion and elimination. Um, it also helps to uh, reduce inflammation. There's been um, you know, emerging evidence really looking at the role of sulforaphane 2 and the role of carcinogenesis and the cancer forming process and even metastasis. Um, and I think the biggest thing is just kind of how it's supporting our body in these daily onslaughts of various different environmental factors and chemicals that we're exposed to on a day to day basis and feel like it's kind of this reassurance or I'm getting my body a little bit more support in addition to a whole foods diet. 
that's awesome. Well, I've actually heard as well that that is a big proponent of um, increasing longevity too. So, oh yeah. yeah, and it's another postbiotic, which I love about it. So it starts off as these glucosinolates, and then the microbial morosinase, or it comes out of the cell wall of the bugs, and they make the sulforaphane, which is the sulfur gas part. That's why actually frozen broccoli, you know, you get frozen vegetables, they've got higher in vitamins, but they've got no active sulforaphane because as they freeze, they rupture the cell membrane, the enzymes activate the glucosinolates, make sulforaphane, so they smell sulfurish, taste sulfurish, but they don't have as much activity in that sulfur compound. But the um, for the people out there, look up NRF2 gene activators because NRF2 genes are the, the, one of the mechanisms that works. And this is why they're so cool, exactly what Tyler was saying. They protect you from really important stuff for us and in the future. Plastics, fertilizers, pesticides, a lot of these environmental issues, but also electromagnetic radiations and everything else. Pretty much everything we should be scared of in the future, sulforaphane can potentially protect us from through NRF2 activation. Fascinating. Cool. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, I'm, I'm mind blown by it all. But when you're talking about um, mitochondrial health and and invigorating the mitochondria to do the good stuff and it does much more than produce energy. What we've got coming in the new year, you're going to absolutely yeah. blow your mind. This thing is so cool. We're, we're really excited to talk about it, but we'll... we'll we can't yet. We can't. Hang on. Hang on. We, we can't yet. <laughs> but the, um, in terms of mitochondria, that's exactly what it's for. It's about, like you said, with the, um, the, the NAD goal that you take, um, you actually feel a difference. And I think that's the, the biggest key factor. We wanted to create something that, we could actually feel the difference with, and it's not just something you take. It's like, oh, I don't really feel any different, and I haven't really felt any different. And you know, I, I hope it's doing something in there. But if, if you can actually feel a physical, mental uplift, then that's kind of what we're after. Especially when I said to Matt, I said I, I want to create uh, something to stimulate my energy production. So when I go and do an assault bike effort or a sixty-second assault bike effort, I can get you know this many more calories than I want something that's going to invigorate me actually moving quicker and performing better rather than just a falsified energy, you know, with just a high stim caffeine you know, um, hit, which I'm, I'm not really into. I'd rather just have a, a shot of coffee instead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's super interesting. And, and Tyler, mate, you've got so much, I think uh, we're going to have to do a part two because yeah, we have to, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're super busy, but um, we might leave it there and then maybe we can roll around for when we can send you out some of, some of our energy tonic. Oh, hell yeah. We do a cellular health one and talk about how the gut control the cells as well, you know? Yeah, you get great. it. You get it, Matt. No, it's been a pleasure talking to the two of you and thank you for your time and uh, yeah, very much open for a follow-up conversation. Awesome, mate. Ooh. Thank you so much. Have a good day and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good.